Turn in your Bibles to Jonah, again, Jonah chapter 2, looking today at verses 8 through 10. Jonah 8 through 10. One of the first things that parents teach their children to say when those first words are coming out are the very special words, thank you, thank you. It's, it's, it's a very appropriate thing for a child to learn early because um, children really don't earn their keep for a long time. And so everything in their life is grace. And so how much better, what better could you learn to say than to say, thank you. The book of Jonah really has the theme of grace. God wanted to show grace to the people of Nineveh, so he sent Jonah to go and warn them. When Jonah wouldn't do that, Jonah fled the other direction on a ship. The entire ship he was on was put in peril, and, and yet God spared the lives of those sailors because of his grace. When they threw Jonah overboard, and then Jonah... At the point of death we saw last week is spared because God prepared a great fish to swallow him and then to take him to land. Again, it's grace. And so the story of Jonah is a story of grace and the psalm of Jonah 2 is really a thanksgiving psalm written really just as other uh, psalms were written. David, when he wrote a thanksgiving psalm, we talked about this last week, it had four elements. There was the crisis, there was the prayer, and then there was the answer. We looked at those three elements last week. Today we look at the fourth one. It's an essential part of a thanksgiving psalm, and that is the response of the one who has been delivered. How will they respond to God's Grace. The response we see of Jonah is a response of worship. Verse 8. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Now, if you, if you look in your bulletin at the pick of the week this week, you know, we didn't know what that fish looked like. Now we do. But Davian Bretz has, uh, has drawn for us very simply the, uh, what happened here in the narrative of this, of this uh, event. He was in the fish, and then the word is blah. <laughs> And uh, Jonah was delivered. Grace comes in unusual forms sometimes, doesn't it? It was this fish, and it was being vomited out to dry land that would make the difference uh, for him. What we find in this little passage at the end of chapter 2 is really the right and the wrong way to respond to God's grace. The wrong way is idolatry. The right way is praise. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, you know that when you die, you will be forever in heaven based on his grace. Not on your works, not on your goodness, but based on his grace. So the question before us is really, how are we responding to the grace of God? 
And so Jonah shows us, first of all, the, the, the wrong view. Those who cling to worthless idols. Um, what kind of idolatry do you think Jonah had in mind, first of all? Um, he has... Um, been exposed to the people of the ship. If you remember in verse 5, what did they do when they hit the, hit the storm? They each called upon their own God. And those gods turned out to be what? Worthless. Those who cling to worthless idols. Obviously, the surrounding pagan nations were idolatrous. But when you think of this book of Jonah, when Jonah had written it, who did it go to? It went to the Jewish people. And so the message about idolatry here, I think, is really meant to impact the people of God. And in fact, the continual temptation that you find throughout the Old Testament and, and, and through the prophets especially is God warning them about the temptation of idolatry. Idolatry doesn't really seem to connect with us sometimes because uh, we can't envision just too many people in Ozaki County that have a statue that they are bowing down to, though those kinds of things are coming into our country more and more. So what was the draw of idolatry and, and really what is the parallel uh, principles for us? The issues of idolatry that tempted them culturally and you could say emotionally, spiritually were several. One is that idols were thought to be responsible for their prosperity and what we won't do for prosperity. And so if the idols bring prosperity, you need to be an idol worshiper. Secondly, the, the worship of idol, idols really was uh, really a core to their social life. Because you would go and meet with uh, the people of your community at the pagan feasts. And in addition to the, you know, the spiritual elements of that, I mean, that's where you talked about the weather, that's where you cut business deals, that's where you connected with the people of your community. So prosperity and, and the social life, but then there was this uh, other very fleshly part of the temptation and attraction, and that is it was a place of excessive drinking and immorality. And immorality was often just a part of the, the, the worship, so-called, of, of, of idolatry. So what's the source of idolatry? It is not a neutral. Idolatry is a spiritual battle. 1 Corinthians 10.20 says that the offerings to idols are actually made to demons. So idolatry is satanic. It comes from the God of this world. Those who cling to worthless idols, what is the consequence? Forfeit the grace that could be theirs. My translation. Others speak of the uh, of regarding uh, those who regard worthless idols, then forfeit the uh, turn away from rather the the love of God. It's a it's a little bit confusing exactly what he's putting his finger on, but this term for love or grace is this Old Testament word that describes the covenant love between God and his people Israel. Hesed, if you've ever heard the Hebrew term. It's, it's the unique uh, loving kindness, steadfast love, uh, mercy uh, that you find. It's a word throughout the Old Testament talking about that unique relationship of love and grace that God had for the people of Israel. And the point was that if you keep to your idolatry, that is the cost. 
that relationship, that closeness with Almighty God who picked you out of the world and put, made you His people, that is what you are forfeiting. That's what you are walking away from. So we need to understand that idolatry always has consequences. Idolatry is always a choice. And idolatry always, therefore, has consequences. So what is the idolatry that can cause us to sacrifice the closeness, the enjoyment, the benefits of the relationship we have with God? It is really anything, any priority that replaces, displaces, that that shoves God aside and becomes more important to us. I'm convinced that our, our modern church, we as believers, are as dangerously polluted with idolatry as any time in the Old Testament. Um, three key idolatry issues I'd like us to think about this morning, as we think about our idolatry, that is. Some principles and then some forms. Three, three issues. What or who do I trust in for help? What or who do I trust in for help? Secondly, what priority or person controls my decisions? And then thirdly, what replaces my love for God? I think these, these concepts are found actually in, in, these, uh, in this verse. The first issue um, of clinging to or regarding Worthless idols. Many times you can find a definition of a word uh, more clearly when you look at a verse that uses it in an opposite way. An opposite kind of clarifies what the, what the other side is. And so in Psalm 31.7 it says, I hate those who pay regard, it's the exact same term uh, in the original language there, clinging to a regard. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. So we can see that the opposite of idolatry is trust. The opposite of trust is idolatry. So who or what do we trust in is the first issue. On what are we dependent? What is our go-to when we're in trouble? We're going to say, oh, but I have this, what, job, 401k, friend, family. You know, what is it that, like, that's my safety net that can replace God. The question of what priority or person controls my decisions. So Jonah says those who cling to worthless idols. It's interesting how that term is also used of this in a positive way to describe keeping or regarding the Sabbath. And so Leviticus says you shall keep, regard my Sabbaths, etc., etc. I am the Lord. So there is a, 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 a very clear way in which Sabbath indicated the spiritual state of a worshiper. Because when you regarded the Sabbath, you woke up that morning and realized this is a different kind of a day. On this day, there are things I must do, there are things I must not do. And so there was a a controlling influence of that day, and that day was not the only day you were to regard God as holy, obviously, but God said, set aside this day, the Sabbath, which was Saturday, to acknowledge that all the days you are seeking to follow me. And so there is to be a certain limiting, 
uh, narrowing of our life because of our commitment to God. Do you know that idolatry does the exact same thing in the negative? And so idolatry is always a controlling thing. And when you, when, when, even our own missionaries, as they are in a more primitive or, or a, a idolatrous, spirit-worshipping type environments, uh, what they find is that people are controlled by their idolatry, the spirits, in fear. And so God is, I mean, the Satan wants to use the fears that we have to control us. And so uh, what is controlling you? What fears control you? So what priorities do you feel like you have to have? What person do you listen to? Because if you don't do what they like or they want or they think, you have these, these fears. Thirdly, what replaces my love for God? First John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then we're going to look at an example in Jeremiah of this uh, factor of idolatry as well. So the sailors on the ship, when the storm came, first of all, in verse 5, they called on their own God. But after God delivered them and, and calmed the sea, look at verse 16, they greatly feared the Lord and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. There had been a complete change of their affections. So instead of calling upon their gods who were worthless, they were now worshiping God who had delivered him. So their affections changed. When you ask that special girl to marry you, you are choosing to become exclusively devoted to her. So that all of your romantic affections, your commitment, your ultimate attention will now belong to her. That's why, that's why marriage is so serious. The vow is, is meant that this is now exclusive. That is what God calls us to in salvation. A life of committed, devoted affection. And you cannot love both. You have to choose. So Jeremiah, I've been reading in there recently, in, in uh, Jeremiah 44, it's really a, a sad story. But this is after uh, the people of Israel have been taken captive into Babylon, many of them from Jerusalem. After generations of prophets warning the people of Israel about their idolatry, God finally follows through and allows Babylon to come in. They destroy, they burn the city, take many of the people, deport them to uh, Babylon. I should go that direction. It was northeast, far away. But some people stayed in Jerusalem. In fact, among them was Jeremiah the prophet. You know what the people that stayed there wanted to do? They wanted to get as far away from Babylon to the northeast as they could, so they were going to flee to Egypt to the southwest. And God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah and says, Tell the people, don't go to Egypt. Stay here in Jerusalem and trust me and, and even submit to the Babylonians because this is where I'll take care of you. And if you go down to Egypt, I'm going to destroy you. Well, you know what the people did? They went down to Egypt took Jeremiah along with them, and they continued in their idolatry, 
in Egypt. Nothing had changed in their own hearts. They were still the same idolatrous people. They, they offered incense. They brought their offerings. And it says that the women secretly were baking cakes in the image of their idol called the Queen of Heaven. And so Jeremiah the prophet confronts them about that and said, don't you realize this is the reason God judged us? And they respond to him, no, we will worship idols. And you know why they, what their rationale was? It's absolutely crazy. They said, when we were back in the land of Israel and we had good crops, we were worshiping the queen of heaven. Their, their, their logic was insane. And Jeremiah confronts him and says, yes, you had good crops because God was graciously delaying his judgment. And, and you had good crops in spite of your idolatry, not because of your idolatry. But that's what idolatry does. It twists your mind. When you love your idols, you believe that your idols love you. You believe that your idols will bring you prosperity. Your idols will bring you happiness. When you love the world, you are convinced that the world will bring you happiness. The world will bring you prosperity and peace. Because essentially, the parallel to idolatry today would be, in the New Testament terms, the world. Let's take a closer look at this passage. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Basically saying that to the degree we love the world, we wreck our affections for God. I hear people say, you know, I still love the Lord, but when you, when you hear that kind of equation, it's not. There has been a shift. And so we have to choose between a love of the world and the love of the Father. How will that show itself? For next verse, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And again, world sounds neutral, but who is the prince of this world, the God of this world, the ruler of this world, but Satan? So the ideas of the world are actually satanic at their core or origin. So what are these issues? The desires or cravings of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life. The word flesh probably refers to flesh. In other words, these are our cravings of our, of, our, of our body physically, emotionally. Probably sexual cravings are at the core of this, and this is before the internet and streaming videos. The addictions to food, alcohol, drugs, all our cravings of the flesh. All these things will impact and damage various parts of our life, but the most uh, basic damage is the damage done to our love for God as believers. These are efforts to replace an emptiness, the cravings of the flesh. Very similar is then the desires of the eyes. Uh, eyes are what you, you see. What you see 
becomes what you want. And it becomes idolatrous. And so it's, it's like, the, the, do not love the world or the things in the world. These are, 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 this is money, this is material things. Now money is not evil, things are not inherently evil, they are resources, but the love of them will displace our love for God. As, it, as, as Paul said, the, it's the love of money, the craving for it, that uh, is the root of all kinds of evil. And so craving material things can be just as true for uh, a low-income person buying lottery tickets as a high-income person upgrading their yacht. It's the same issue. It's the craving. Matthew 6.24, God says, Christ says, you cannot love God and money. What does that mean? You can have God and have money, but it's, it's where is our, our love? There's this uh, antithesis, uh, uh, this opposition. And then finally, the pride of life. Pride is conceit. The word life is interesting. It's not just the word of living here or living even in heaven. It's, it's really the word livelihood. It's the pride of your livelihood. Uh, probably not looking only at a career type of a thing, but our identity of who we are in, in life. So what is your identity? And whether you, it's a, it's, you have a job that you're paid for or not paid for, uh, what are you known for? What do you cling to that this is who I am? My significance is found in that I am blank. These things can become idolatrous for us. So, as we think through that, what, for yourself, is God saying is your temptations for idolatry? We've, I'll just kind of review some of the things that, have, that we've mentioned. People, maybe, that we expect to, to help us. They are, my, they are my default. They'll take care of me. It might seem to be the opposite, but the other next one would be self-sufficiency. It's my ability, my intelligence, my money. So in other words, I, I am trusting in me. I am my own idol. I can handle this. It might be people that I want to please or want to affirm me. The, 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 the longing for uh, approval, often of certain people, can become a controlling influence for us. Success. It's not so much pleasing one people, it's trying to please, or not even please, but impress as many as possible. Probably the, the most aptly, aptly named TV show of all time is American Idol. Because <laughs> that's exactly what it is. And while I really can, I can enjoy good performances, uh, you, just, you see this thread running through the idea that people are just longing to be... An idol. <laughs> so wanting to be an idol is actually their idol. And then, of course, there's money and material things that we saw. Uh, we easily see the excesses of others. It takes a very good friend or, or, or spouse to help us see our own, I think, sometimes. But no matter who you are, someone is ahead of you with money and stuff. Unless you own most of Amazon, like Jeff Bezos, now there's nobody ahead of you. But does it fill his emptiness? No. No. So no matter what there is that we could acquire, it would not fill. Contentment is the opposite of idolatry. 
contentment. God-focused contentment is the cure, really, of this aspect of idolatry. And then there are the addictions, sexual lust, food, drugs, alcohol. 2 Timothy 3, 4, in the last days, people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, tempting to fill those holes. And a close cousin to addictions would be obsessions. The only difference being that uh, obsessions are when we excessively focus on things that are otherwise good or even blessings. Uh, Obsession with hobbies, entertainment, sports, vacations, pleasure, where they now become not blessings but obsessions that are displacing God. Pastor David Platt has a great YouTube video, just six minutes long, called Idolatry and Sports. This is a good time to bring, good year to bring that up for Packer fans because we just don't feel quite so guilty uh, obsessing over the Packers this year. What is the cost or the consequences to forfeit the grace that could be theirs, to turn away from that special relationship that we have with God by grace. Because what we choose really determines what we worship. And so life consists of decision after decision, day after day. Does this decision enhance my relationship with God or does it distract from it? Does this decision distract me from how God wants me to serve him or how I can serve me? Does this decision impact the family God gave me to support and influence in a positive way, spiritually, or negatively? And so all these decisions wrapped up together become either a displacement or a, a, a vehicle by which we can actually honor God. Can we afford to give up the grace that could be ours, the closeness, the love, the commitment, the enjoyment of a grace relationship with God? So Jonah, seeing the contrast, says, but this is what I determined to do. And I believe as we're reading this psalm, we are reading Jonah 2.0. This is written not in the fish, this is written, I think, after chapter 4. We talked about that last week. There, this is, this is his reflection on his experience. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Why? Because salvation comes from the Lord. This is all predicated on the fact that God had delivered him from the peril of death in the Mediterranean Sea. He had delivered, saved him from that. So based on your grace, I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, and what I have vowed, I will make good. So what is it? Here's now this crucial fourth element of the thanksgiving psalm. What is it that he will do to respond to God? If he's going to abandon idolatry, what is he going to refocus his life on. With the song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. The word song, you may have the word sound. It's actually technically not a word that means, that has to mean music, but it includes it. But it is some audible means of praising God. 
It is something that others can hear. So there is sound. Maybe it's shouting. Maybe it's singing. Maybe it's giving a testimony. Maybe it's sharing what God's doing in your life, but it's audible. Jonah says, I won't hide that with the sound. So the question for us is, do, do you audibly praise God? When? Where? To whom? With whom? This is not about a personality type. This is not about uh, public speaking. But, but who around you hears you giving God credit for how great he is? Does your spouse? Is that a part of your conversation that you would speak of how God is at work and how you see him at work? Is it in your conversations with your children that they, they know that dad, that mom, give God credit? Is there audible? If you think it, they don't hear it. If you say it, they do. Are there people that you share with that way? One of the reasons that God has always, in both Old and New Testaments, designed worship to be corporate is so that we can be, as a group, encouraging each other audibly. And so you, you read of the Psalms where they were coming together to sing on the way to the temple for these feasts and at the feasts, and, and, and so they would be audibly hearing each other and the exact same thing is true, though the church is different than the temple, yet that purpose is sustained. Uh, yesterday at the No Regrets Men's Conference, uh, Pastor uh, Stuart Briscoe shared about being filled in the Spirit. And uh, he focused on this first verse in Ephesians 5, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And that's just a, that's the foundational part of our walk with God is that instead of being controlled by something negative, one of our idols, wine here being an example, we are to be controlled, yielded purposely to the Spirit. But in this context, what is the result or consequence of being filled by the Spirit? It is that we would be speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs just to make sure that all styles of music, you know, you can't, you can't opt out. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then foundational to that is an attitude of always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is always thankfulness, it is always vertical. But how does the audible part work? Who are we singing to, according to that verse? There's two answers, to one another and in our hearts to the Lord. So it is great. This, this, is, this is no minimizing of the importance of personal worship. You're singing in the car, you're singing in the shower, you're praising God in the woods while you're hunting. Personal worship is part of, 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 a, of a quality, growing Christian. But public singing in worship is meant to be to one another. Let me just ask this question. Do you sing audibly? Because this is not multiple choice. Pick, pick whether you're going to sing to each other or sing to the Lord, invisibly and quietly. It's not, it's not a choice. It's both and. 
Do, do you make an effort to learn the songs, to sing audibly, to encourage one another? With an attitude, though, of thanksgiving. Because it needs to be to the Lord. It's not to impress them how well you sing or how loud you sing. It's, it's in your heart to the Lord. It has to be authentic, but are we praising audibly? Then he says, with a song of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you, and what I have vowed, I will make good. Uh, we saw that dual aspect of worship in verse 16 of chapter 1 where they they sacrificed and made vows and one of the key distinctions between those words they they aren't that much different but the but the sacrifice is what they do now and the vow is the promise of future sacrifices and so you often find them together the vow is what i'm going to do in the future and so this is what Jonah is, is determining to do, to sacrifice and make good on the ongoing worship of the future. I am going to make my vows to you. Why? Because salvation comes from the Lord. So let's start with the last phrase. Salvation comes from the Lord. This is the motive of his worship. It's because of your grace in my life. His was physical deliverance. Ours starts with spiritual but then there's so many other ways that God has preserved us. Here we are today, that God has preserved our lives. So grace motivates a sustained commitment. Guilt will not cause worship. Simple compliance does not motivate worship. It's an appreciation of what God has done for us. That's what changes our heart and motivates us. That's why it's so important that we, 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 we read, say, sing, and think in terms of God's grace. So grace motivates sustained commitment, and then we look at the term sacrifice and realize that worship always involves a cost. The Old Testament worshipers brought either animals or some type of grain product, both of those were financial cost. Uh, that, was the, that was their economy in, in an agricultural society. It was either an animal or you bring the, the sheaves for the wave offering or the meal for the, the flower for the fellowship offerings or whatever it was, but it was all like money because that's what they had. It, that means that if they gave it, they couldn't eat it themselves, essentially. So there was a financial cost, but there was also in, in all sacrifice for sin, there was the, uh, the cost of humility. Because any time you brought an animal and actually killed an animal, you were saying, I am a sinner. I am acknowledging my need for God's forgiveness. You were really saying, I'm acknowledging that I deserve to die for what I've done this week. Isn't that a scary thought? If God were just, none of us would be here this week. But because of God's grace, he, he, he sustains and tolerates us. He's not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. This is he spared Israel. He spared, he spared Jonah after his sin, and he has spared us. And so sacrifice has a financial and a cost and a cost of spiritual humility. King David once said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. 
So worship is costly. We, need to, we must never ever think that by financial giving we are helping to pay for our sins. That is not the point. We are responding to the fact that Christ has already paid for our sins. In, and so it's gratitude. Worship involves cost. And then finally, worship must become a committed lifestyle. That's the, the vow. So Jonah says, this is not a momentary thank you. Uh, there's, there's crisis worship that uh, is important. If you just almost have this accident, you could have died, you know, but just in time. And, and you go, oh, thank you, Lord. That is sincere. But two weeks later, you might completely have forgotten about it. Jonah says, I'm not going to do that. I think the Lord receives a lot of momentary flash-in-the-pan worship. Something happens, and boy, all of a sudden, we are, we are, we're all committed, and we just all... Jonah says, no, this is going to be my lifestyle. What you have done for me is now impacting me for the rest of my life. One of the patterns that can't help but notice in one another is that there's many times that people start and restart, start and restart, start and restart worship. Something happens and then they, then they yeah. Just, just to be frank, our, our, our biggest bursts in attendance through the, through the past history of the church have been like a year or two after 9-11 and then a year or two in the financial crisis of, of, of 9 and 10. People started coming to church far more regularly. And so the, we experience those kind of things, kind of the, I need to be there, boy, this is all important. We will never grow spiritually mature through start and stop commitments. It's kind of like I go to the Y and it's really hard to find a machine in January. Can you develop health by working out in January and like the first two weeks of February? Not really, no. It has to be, whatever it is, has to become a lifestyle for it to become healthy. And likewise, we cannot grow spiritually healthy with a start and stop mentality. It's, it's what happens in three years and 13 and 30 years of commitment and, and worshiping God, worshiping God together, serving the Lord interacting, fellowshipping, growing in the word, prayer. And those are the long-term things that will impact not only ourselves, but our families and our churches and our, and our communities. And Jonah says, I'm going to make good on my vows, reflecting that salvation comes from the Lord. And then it returns to the, to the historical Heart, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. And that was that moment of grace that would, would stimulate, I think, later the prayer of Jonah. A prayer of thanksgiving for God's grace. Let's pray together. And as we move to the communion table, you know what we're doing? We're saying thank you to God for his grace. Heavenly Father, we just... Uh, Acknowledge this morning our deep need for grace. If we don't say thank you, we have completely misunderstood our total dependence on you for eternal life as well as for every blessing 
we might enjoy. And so we want to be thankful, grateful people, even as Jonah realized that apart from you, he was, he was dead. And so, Lord, we want to uh, respond to your grace with praise, worship, sacrificial commitment, and returning and enjoying the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.